right, you said it was just class for the students. Apparently it's class for you too, the way she's talking. All right, my name is Janice. I'm so glad to be with you this morning while the men are en route back uh, here. Um, I have texted with my husband a few times and apparently it was a very, very good weekend and I'm anxious to hear all the details um, about that. Well, this morning, um, I have a fun topic. I'm gonna talk about getting rich. Which, uh, yeah, don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about. How many of you really bought one of those million billion dollar lottery tickets last week? You know, you know what? I mean? You don't want to raise your hand. Don't raise. Some of you I know have really stern, stern, strict, whatever, uh, spiritual convictions against lotteries, and bless you. Some of you are like, I just think it's the biggest waste of time and money that I've ever heard of. And then some of you are like, heck yeah, I'll swing at that if it's that big. And the problem is, you're probably married to each other. Right, and that's a, that's a thing. And so somebody somebody got rich, I guess, last week. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that. And uh, oddly enough, we're going to be working out of the book of Matthew. So if you have your Bibles uh, or devices, you want to head over there, Matthew five. For the last uh, few Sundays, we've been in a series. Our summer series has been Song Psalms. So all of the sermons have been based loosely out of the book of Psalms. And I've been kind of camping in. Uh, Jesus' teachings, the red letter. So today we're going to be working out of the Sermon on the Mount. These, these three chapters have been loosely dubbed as the Sermon on the Mount. Let me tell you this, no one knows if this was one complete sermon that Jesus sat up there and, and apparently everybody to like took copious notes that day and that day only and we have this one complete sermon, or if this is a collection of the many teachings that he gave during uh, his ministry. No one really knows that. I'm not certain it matters. What I do love is the organization of it. Uh, because I think sometimes I grew up in church and I've heard people like splice and dice this down to like, you know, one verse and the three, you know, where was the placement of the A, the M, the the, and all of that stuff. And, and it's true, you can focus in really sharply on the teachings of Jesus. But I think that there's sometimes value in stepping back and getting a more telescopic view, if that's the right way to use that term, view of what's the theme? What is Jesus trying to get across in, in this series of, of teachings? And why is it organized the way it is? Whether Jesus organized it that way or whether the gospel of the writer, uh, the writers of the gospels did that under the direction of the Holy Spirit doesn't really matter to me. I think it's divinely inspired this way. And so we're going to be working through stuff. Do not, I'm just caveat, do not get bogged down in minutia today, okay? I'm going to, I'm going to hit a lot of scripture. Don't get bogged down. Stay with me. And I think we'll land the plane at the end. Fair enough? All right, Matthew 5, starting in verse 17. And, and what I want to get at here is, what did Jesus come to teach and what is he trying to get across to people? And this is him speaking. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I'm in 517. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of these, the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of, the heaven, of heaven. Now, here's what Jesus is not doing. Jesus did not come, and he's saying very clearly, I did not come to trash the past. I did not come to tell you what was wrong with Moses' law and the law that God gave Moses and, and was handed down to the children of Israel. I did not come to trash that. I am coming to explain and fulfill 
that law. I am coming to give that a little bit deeper meaning. He is not even offering extra credit. Don't think this is an extra credit lesson, okay? Like, he's not, what he is saying is just keeping the law in which the Pharisees were very good at. If you consider yourself a, a rule keeper, if you, if you like to follow rules and you like to keep track of everybody else who's not following rules, right? The, the Pharisees were good at that. And he's saying that's not enough. Just keeping track of that personally and logging your own stuff and making sure that you've kept every, you know, every little bit that, uh, that's there, that's not enough. We're going to move past the letter of the law to the spirit of the law. Because Jesus is looking at the core of the issue. He wants, to look, he wants to dig down into the core and not just the surface. Because folks, I think we are so easily swayed by the ripples of things that happen. It takes so very little in our society right now to like trigger us, doesn't it? We say the smallest thing and people just lose their mind about something. Instead of really getting down to the hurt, the wound, whatever it is. Even in our personal life. You know, sometimes we're just slapping band-aids on the things in our life and we're not really getting down to the heart of what our, our pain is coming from, where our motivations are coming from, where our ambitions are coming from. We're, we're so surface-oriented a lot of times in making things look right, making sure no one else sees any ripples, that we're not dealing with the stuff under here. And Jesus wants to go deep right here. And, um, and so to demonstrate what he means by keeping the spirit of the law, uh, of this Old Testament law, he is going to use several commonly understood laws as examples, okay? Commonly understood. These are widely, for his audience, these are widely accepted forms of behavior. He's not teaching a big new thing when he starts to talk about these topics in a minute. He's saying, you have heard this. In other words, you have followed this, but I say this. And he does that six different times. You have heard it said, but I say. You have heard it said, but I say. And he's going to hit six different topics. And I want to roll through them, not to, to give a teaching on any one of them, because I don't believe Jesus was giving a, an exhaustive teaching on any one of them. Right? He's going to mention divorce. He's going to mention murder. He's going to mention adultery. He's going to mention justice, an eye for an eye kind of thing. He's going to mention something that's odd to us, the idea of oaths. I mean, he's going to mention those, not to give an exhaustive teaching, but he's using all of these to demonstrate how you can go deeper than the letter of the law. Okay, so I'm going to comment on each one of them, but don't get, don't get lost on that, right? Don't get distracted on your favorite one, okay? On the way in. Are you ready? Okay, so here we go. Murder. Maybe this is your favorite one, in case you were thinking about that this week. You have heard it, that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Widely accepted standard of behavior, okay? For, for his audience and us. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, will be answerable to the court. For anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift of, at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go, be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge. The judge will hand you over to the officer and then you will be thrown in prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny, right? This thing es escalates, all right? The point isn't just don't murder, right? He's saying get ahead of the anger or the conflict that ultimately leads to murder. 
Murder tends to not be this random thing, right? Murder tends to be originated generally by something, by some sort of irritation, some sort of anger, something that has gone unaddressed, that has, that's grown up. So this is a statement on the importance of conflict resolution, of mediation. And to be fair, a lot of us wait too late on this. We do. You got trouble in your marriage and, you, and sometimes we wait too late. If, if you have the slightest struggle in your marriage right now, can I just say, just get help. <laughs> get help. It doesn't have to be on the brink of divorce for you to seek help. Seek help before you get to that point, right? If you're, if you're struggling in some other area, if you, in, in a friendship, you know, resolve your problems with a friendship early. In your family, don't let things stew. In your disputes, settle up promptly, right? Instead of letting anger brew over, be proactive. I mean, have you ever had a misunderstanding with someone that got better because you just ignored it for a while? We're like, I, I don't want to deal with that. I'm sure it'll blow over. Really? Does it tend to blow over? Not usually. I mean, depending on what kind of person you are, it tends not to blow over. Things get worse. And so if I were to sum up this whole little teaching, I would say, you know, if you were thinking about murder this week, be proactive. Right? Okay, that's your tip. All right? Adultery. Let's talk about that. Adultery. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Also, commonly understood behavior. Do you know that even non-Christians think that's a bad idea? <laughs> I'm amazed at how Christians have kind of co-opted all kinds of stuff, and they're like, we can do whatever we want, and we can be with somebody that we're not married to, and we can live together before we get married, and we can do all these things. But even non-Christians are like, you don't get somebody else's spouse. You don't do that, right? Everybody has, there's a little bit of a rule there, right? So commonly understood. You've heard that it said you should not commit adultery, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is not a call to self-mutilation. This is a call to radical behavior, a radical addressing of the source of the problem, right? And so in the, in the words of Barney Fife, nip it, nip it in the bud, right? Adultery is not a spontaneous, you know, purchase in the Walmart checkout line, right? These things brew in our heart. Those things get started somewhere else that we let go unattended. And so, and if I were to sum up his words on adultery, it would be, don't just avoid the act of adultery, nip it in the bud, get ahead of it, right? Number three, divorce. Again, don't get hung up here, right? If this is a trigger for you, and this is a, a part that you consider shameful in your life, I'm not trying to lay this on you. I'm telling you, he's using this as an example. This is not a complete teaching, on this topic, all right? Just a couple verses. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. That was a commonly understood behavior. But I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for Im sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Clearly, divorce was permitted in Old Testament law under Moses, and Jesus is reminding people here that divorce always has consequences and always has victims, even when you have the proper escape clause. So let's avoid it, right? It's never easy. It's always a death, and let's avoid that. Let's get ahead of that. Divorce, avoid it. Next one, oaths, oaths. Verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, 
either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now, that's, this is kind of an odd one for us, but understand this. The Pharisees had made an arbitrary um, system of how they would determine which commitments you made which were binding and the commitments you made which were non-binding. And if you made a commitment or a promise based on and swore heaven and hell on it, you were bound to keep that one. But if you made a promise over here and didn't throw on those extra expletives or whatever, then you could weasel your way out of that commitment. You understand what I'm saying? And Jesus is saying, quit looking for loopholes everywhere you go and instead say what you mean and mean what you say. Let your word be your word without having to use the force of heaven or the force of earth behind it to, to make that go through, okay? So mean what you say. Next one, eye for an eye. This is all about justice. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That's fair, right? You take my eye, I get yours, right? Well, if you take my eye, I don't really want yours. That's weird, right? But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And what he's saying here is, instead of insisting on retribution for everything that someone has done against you, just give them, offer up more than is required. Offer up more than they even wanted. Instead of justice, offer grace, more than they deserve. Mercy lets people off the hook. Justice evens the scale. But grace, grace is willfully allowing someone to get the better deal. Grace is willfully agreeing that you can have the better deal. Let them have it. In the grand scheme of things, let it go that brings up frozen soundtrack to you, that's fine. Let it go. In the terms of justice, eye for an eye, let it go. Last one, love for enemies. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Let us quit opting for the cheapest form of Christianity. Let us quit doing that. Anyone can return good for good. Anyone can return evil for evil. It is instinct. Jesus is inviting us to live in a way that is beyond instinct. He's inviting us to, to live in a way that is an expensive form of Christianity. And it may cost us our dignity. It may cost us our pride. It may even cost us our very holy quest for justice and recognizing that that's not going to be the case right? But it is tough to pray. It is tough to hate the people that we pray for. When you pray for your enemy, it's tough to hate them. You know, I learned this a while back when I was feeling particularly persecuted at a time in my life. And I'm like, you know, somebody is, is harming me in this way. And I, and I don't like what they're doing. And, and I can't do anything about it. And I'm like, finally, I got to this place of instead of just saying, God, don't let them hurt me. I began to say, God, Please help that person to live in the center of your will. Please, please help that person because what they're doing to me right now does not feel like the center of your will, and I doubt that it is. But if they are responsive to you and if they're living in the center of your will, then I feel pretty certain they won't harm me anymore. 
You understand what I'm saying? If my enemies are behaving themselves and minding their manners, it might not hurt me. Because maybe it's a selfish way to pray, but you know what I mean? It gave me a way to kind of say, God, bless their life. Help them to live in a way that give them whatever they need so that they do not have to lash out at me in this way. So that, so that I can have a little relief here. That was one way that I began to do it. But it's hard to hate somebody that you're praying for. So love the undeserving. That's how I would sum that up. Now, Jesus could have used 600 more laws to make his point. He just happened to pick those six. This is, again, not an exhaustive teaching on those six. Rather, what is the point that he is trying to make in all of these things? And he is saying, living by the letter of the law doesn't cut it. It's perfunctory. The Pharisees have been doing it for years. He wanted to bring a higher and deeper meaning and invite us to practice the spirit behind the law. Now, on your way in, uh, those of you online, I hope you can see this, but on your way into the worship center, I hope you got one of these little cards. If you didn't ask for one, because I'm hoping you can like stick it on your mirror or in your Bible or a bookmark or something and, uh, and let it remind you of some things as we go. Let me explain the context of this. It says, I hope, or I hop, I hop you get rich. Um, here's where this came from. We did our Wild Week um, a week or so ago, and our students, instead of a craft day, they did an outreach project. And so they were assembling bags to be given to homeless people, you know, toiletries and snacks and things like that. And then we made up some little cards for them and told them that they could write a note on the card. And my children's director sent a picture of this to our staff, and she said, the outreach is going well. Somebody wrote, I hope you get rich. I love this so much. I cannot tell you. And the longer I think about it, the more it sits with me, right? I don't, I don't know who did it. I don't know who the artist is, but I'm keeping this forever, okay? Um, and actually, I went to great effort to get it back from the person who took it home. But at any rate, I hope you get rich. Here's what I think happened. This little child understood the idea that they were making things for someone who didn't have stuff. Someone who probably didn't have a home. Somebody who didn't have enough groceries, didn't have enough money for something. And they came up with a lavish solution to this problem. This is a lavish solution to poverty. They didn't write, I hope you get enough, I hope you get a grocery card to pay the rest of your bills. I hope you get enough to catch up on your back electric and rent, right? They didn't say that. They didn't, I don't hope you get enough, I hope you get rich. I hope you get so much in your life, you don't know what to do. I hope you win the million billion dollar lottery, that regardless of what you think about whether or not people would spend that well. I hope that you get that. It's a lavish solution, right? And I was thinking, what if that same child was analyzing the shortcomings of our relationship to God? What would they wish for us? What would the lavish solution of our shortcomings with God, what would the richness of that relationship, what would that look like? Because see, Jesus is telling his audience in the Sermon on the Mount that he wants more for us than just the minimum. He wants more than for us to just do what's expected or to reach that one goal. He, want, he doesn't want us to get rich economically, but to live rich. When we can live rich, it, it's not a matter of what we're consuming or storing up for ourselves. So, but before I, before I go any further, I want to make sure that I make this point. This is not a try harder message, okay? Jesus is not saying to us this morning, you've been doing really good, now step it up. Do you know what I mean? That's not what he's saying. And, and, and that's my default, right? I'm, I'm the kind of person that when, when, I, when something's not going well in my life, I do it harder. 
And so when something's not going well in my life, then it goes worse, harder. You know what I'm saying? Because I'm just doing the same thing harder. But I just always say, I was raised on a farm, so I just get my tractor in a lower gear, I dig in, and I just keep going, right? Instead of allowing course correction whenever God wants to do it. This is not a do it harder kind of message. I want this to be a liberating kind of thought when we, when we think about this, right? Because I really think that right now, if, if, if the message here was for you to do more and do it harder, we'd all be like, I'm already exhausted. I'm exhausted. It's almost the end of summer, and I'm so tired from summer. And I'm watching all of your vacation pictures, and I'm like, dude, you know, I'm feeling for you. You have to go home and unpack that mess and wash those children and, and that camper and whatever you're, I mean, I'm, you know what I mean? What a first world problem that we can't eat. We are exhausted by our recreation. It's ridiculous when you think about it. And, and yet, we, we end up creating these lives without any margin at all, and then we're tempted to live and function at the lowest level of survival. But instead of being a try-harder message, listen to me, in reality, being proactive, nipping it in the bud, avoiding easy escape clauses, meaning what we say, letting things go, and loving the undeserving, that's not an overachiever message. That's an avoiding misery lifestyle. That's a misery-saving lifestyle. When I avoid an inappropriate relationship with somebody that I'm not married to, I save myself so much grief, <laughs> right? Because I don't have to go back and fix all of that. When I say what I mean and mean what I say, I save myself so much explaining and hardship and misunderstanding. This is, this is not a thing of you have to do something extra. This is, this is doing something that God is going to free us into living. And yet, we live in this world filled with minimal requirements. So, therefore, we often offer minimal effort. What is the least I can do to qualify for this or that? What is the least effort I can expend for a certain result? How can I get my food quicker, faster, cheaper? How can I get physical results quicker and faster? How can I make more money with less discipline and less risk? How can I keep my relationships healthy without any effort or care? It's a, it's a ridiculous sort of, of minimal living. And here's where I think it really camps out. So students, I want to talk to you a minute. <laughs> College students in particular, but maybe everybody else as well. I, I figured this out when I was teaching at the university. Well, actually, I probably figured it out when I was going back to the university before I started teaching there. When I would, would go into a classroom and the first exam's coming down the pike, and I've got my notes and I sit down and I study, and I'll tell you this, if I study 10 minutes for that exam, 10 lousy minutes, and I manage to pull an A or a B with it, Guess how long I'm studying for the next exam? I'm not doing 15, right? There's no way. We're going to take the, load of res uh, the, the road of least resistance. We're going to take that path. So whatever you got away with the first time, that's what you're going to do the next time. If you consistently get to class five minutes late and the professor doesn't care or say anything, you have no initiative to get there early, none at all, you will begin to do those sorts of things. Academia is, is stuck with that, right? Here was another example. I had a professor um, at University of Dayton a zillion years ago, and I walked into class. It was a philosophy class. It was so terrible. Oh, it was so terrible. It was, maybe you love philosophy, but it was so boring. And he, he assigned this massive book that cost over $100 and had, oh my word. But he made the mistake of saying on the first day, and I heard him, and he said, you will never be tested over anything that we do not cover in class. Cha-ching! I didn't even buy the book. I am a good listener. 
I didn't buy the book at all. I didn't read a single reading. My poor friends around me were reading until three in the morning, this stuff they couldn't retain. And I was just taking great notes. And I got the notes and I spit them back out to him and I aced that class without ever buying the ding dong book. Because he, but I'm not proud of that, except that that's the way we're, we're wired to do something. If it's something we don't want to do. If it's something we really don't want to do to start with, we will find a way to do just the minimum. How many of you ever gave the coach an extra lap when you were told to run laps? Just for funsies, right? I mean, unless you thought it was going to earn you something, but seriously, right? How many of you ever tipped Uncle Sam on your taxes because he's done such a good job with them so far, right? How many of you ever offered to pay sticker price on a car or a truck or whatever just because, you know, you thought negotiating was not a good thing to do and you wanted to pay the full amount, right? Some of us treat God like we're negotiating a deal. We're like, God, what is the least I can do? What is the least attendance I can offer, the least service I can do, the you know, smallest amount of time I can pray and feel okay about it? And, and what, what is the least I can do in exchange for the salvation that you've given me and for the relationship I want to maintain? Sometimes we're living in that minimal requirement kind of of land. And I think sometimes it's because either we don't really want to do it, or here's the other problem that I think hits a lot of us, we're doing too many things. We're just flat doing too many things. And so in order for us to function at all, we're barely hitting minimum on everything, right? I barely have enough energy for my kid. I barely have enough energy for my career. I barely have enough energy for, you know, my spiritual walk. I barely have any of that. And I'm telling you, there's only one solution to that, and that is pare down and prioritize pare down and prioritize. We cannot do as many things as we're doing and expect that we will do them all well. And, uh, and I think God is, is after us about those things. Here's one quick little tidbit, and if you're interested in this, uh, dig it up later. But in term, there's a man named Henry Cloud, and he wrote a book, Necessary Endings, and I love the way he, he broke down John 15 in terms of pruning a vine. And he says, these, these are the three things you need to cut out of your life. Things that are good but not best, Things that are sick but not getting well, they're not getting well. And things that have long since been dead, they're dead things in your life and you just leave them there. And you need to cut those things off that are dead, not producing fruit, so that you can produce the fruit that God wants you to produce. So think about your life and the areas where you maybe feel like you're only giving a minimal effort, right? Whether it's work, relationship, career, whatever. I think that 2020, unfortunately, taught a lot of us to phone it in. Right? We, I mean, and because we couldn't do anything else. You couldn't show up on time, right? The best you could do was log in early, you know what I mean? And, you know, you know, wear clothes instead of not. I mean, you know what I mean? There were a few ways to, like, excel and do things well when we were in 2020. And some of that has, has drifted over, and it's hard to go above and beyond in any area. And so some of us are, are feeling stuck. Are you feeling stuck this morning? Well, maybe you want to get rich, number one. Jesus offers a lavish solution. Jesus, just like this child, offers a lavish solution to poverty. Jesus offers a lavish solution to us, to our life, to our sin, to everything that is going wrong in our life. And he is inviting us this morning, I'm convinced of it, quit settling for enough. Quit settling for making the mark and nothing more right? Jesus did not come all the way down here to help us grind out rote obedience to the law, but to experience the fullness of living above and beyond anyone's expectation. 
John 15, 11, for these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus did not invite his disciples to just follow. He invited them to a lavish following and he continued to offer lavish solutions to everybody's problems. Right? He goes to a wedding, the very first miracle that, he, that is recorded that he does. He goes to a wedding. They've run out of wine. His, his mama says, fix it. And I would take that to mean, please you know, take your buddies on a beer run and go down to the liquor store and figure this thing out. And instead, he doesn't go down and buy whatever's on the clearance aisle. He makes the best stuff there is. The best stuff there is. At another time, he has 5,000 people who have come to hear him speak. And they're, I don't know, it was a hot day and they're famished or whatever. And the disciples are like, dude, these guys need food. They got to get out of here. We got to do something. And, uh, you know, we don't even have crackers. And instead of producing crackers, Jesus takes one little kid's meal and turns it into this massive catering project. A catering project so big, there are 12 baskets of leftovers. Don't take my word for it. Read it. Are you kidding me? I think God wants to take whatever little basket and fishes and loaves that you have in your life and turn it into leftovers. And I'm not talking about your bank account. I'm talking about us living a life so full that the leftover of us, when we're gone, our legacy has leftovers for other people because we have lived richly toward others and toward God. So God gave the most lavish solution of all right? That's just, that was Jesus' ministry. God gave the most lavish solution of all. I sometimes sit around and think, God, how else could you have done this? You know, the, the animal sacrifice thing was working pretty good in the Old Testament. You know, I mean, it's a little cumbersome. You have to bring animals in and whack them, and the priests have to butcher all day long and all that. But, you know, but it was working. No. He came up with a lavish solution. He sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. The most lavish solution beyond anything you and I would do. We wouldn't pony up our kid for that. I mean, I love you, but I, I'm not sure I would, I would take my kid out for you. You know what I mean? That's a big thing. It's a big ask. And Jesus let, God let his son Jesus die on the cross for our sins and be raised on the third day. God, guys, that's what our faith is built on. It is the most lavish solution to our sin because God wasn't willing to just settle. And he doesn't want us to just settle. So John 10.10 says, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. If you are settling in any area of your life right now, I'm telling you the enemy is actively stealing life from you. If you're settling in any area of your life right now for less than what God wants to give you, the enemy is actively stealing life from you. God, Jesus knows that living rich, living lavishly toward God is a full life, a parisos life, abundant, excessive. Even when the rewards aren't visible in this moment or in this decade even, we're striving for a city that we cannot see. And don't get me wrong, this is not self-indulgent consumption. This is living life fully toward others. The book of Hebrews, um, chapter 11, is sometimes called the Hall of Faith, and there's a list of the ancient characters in the Old Testament and the things that they did for God. And I love what Hebrews says about it. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. All of these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. 
They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking about the country they had left, they would have had an opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And this is my favorite line in verse 38. The world was not worthy of them. To live where the world isn't worthy of us because they saw the long game, the long game. And don't think that this is just a short message for Jesus because the Beatitudes, which happened before I even got you into to the, uh, chapter five, the first part of chapter five, the Beatitudes are all about, you know, the long game. If you're sad right now, if you're mourning right now, if you're poor in spirit right now, if you're feeling meek right now, if you're persecuted right now, it's okay, better days are coming because your reward is being prepared. It's a long game. I hope you do not settle for mediocre Christianity. I hope you get rich in your love for God. Number two, I need to hustle. Number two, secondly, I think one of the reasons that we struggle to come up with anything more than a mediocre level or, or a meeting a minimum requirement is our disappointments, right? Disappointment can steal our life. So number two, hope is a lavish solution to disappointment. You know, the disappointments might be as simple as, you know, I always thought I'd have a healthy body and my body is failing me right now. Um, I always thought that I'd have a better marriage than this, but it's not going the way I hoped. I thought I'd have a marriage by now and I don't have that. I thought I'd have children by now. I thought I'd have, be further along in my career. Whatever the disappointments are in your life, right, you begin to wonder what's going on. And if you are in a season of disappointment right now in any area of your life, again, I want you to know that the enemy wants to use that to derail you to throw your life out of balance, okay? Because you may think that you're disappointed in a person or in a situation or a thing, but ultimately the enemy wants you to shift that blame and this is where the blame ends up going, it goes to God. Now I'm not just blaming the thing, I'm blaming God. Let me give you an example. I was in grad school a zillion years ago and, and uh, there were 12 of us in a class, it was a once a week class, we met for two hours, a very renowned professor, people were commuting a far distance to be in this class. And one character among our 12 people would not stop talking. He talked so much and would interrupt and he was just consuming class time. And when the uh, professor went out to take a smoke break as he did every time at about the hour mark, this guy turns around to all of us and he goes, you know you get extra credit for who talks the most. And we all just wanted to punch him in the face. You know, we didn't, but we were so mad. And I remember my friend saying, I paid tuition to hear the professor talk, not him. And, you know, and so first we were angry at the kid who couldn't quit talking. But after a few weeks, guess who we were mad at? We were mad at the professor who had the ability to fix that and didn't correct it. You know what I mean? He was the one in, in charge and he did not correct that. When you recognize that God really is in charge, sometimes whatever your disappointments are, the enemy uses it for you to now doubt whether God really loves you and whether he's really taking care of you. If you begin to score your love based on how well he delivers what you're wanting from him, right? So that's a way that, that we can blame shift in a way that will begin to harm us and our enemy will use disappointment to create distance from God. But listen, disappointment is real. Disappointment is real, but so is hope. The problem is we think that they're mutually exclusive and I'm convinced that we can hold hope in one hand and disappointment in the other. 
We're going to be going into the book of Nehemiah in our small groups in the fall, and I'm kind of excited about it, and I've been you know, reading ahead. And um, there's this one passage in Nehemiah where they're constructing the wall, and they have a lot of opposition. They're being, people are fighting against them while they're trying to build something, and this is what it says. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore a sword at his side while he worked. It is possible for us to be working with a tool and, and still have a weapon at the same time. It is possible for us to do two things at one time. We do not have to be so fully consumed in our disappointment that we no longer have a hand on our hope. Don't hold that bucket, of, that, that bucket with two hands, whatever disappointment you have. You may not understand why God has not come through for you and the various things that you're interested in, but there may be a plan that you don't know anything about, and you may never know anything about it while you're on this earth. You may find out about it later. But just because we don't understand it does not mean that we get, give up hope. I hope you get rich in hope. Finally, you want to get rich, number three, live with surprising generosity. Live with surprising generosity. Generosity is giving more than is expected or required, and I don't mean just being a big tipper. What if we caught people off guard? What if we caught society off guard with our generous approach to every unfair thing in this world? What if we were generous toward people's misunderstandings? What if we were generous toward the issues that are out there instead of the way we are right now and, and creating so many polarized situations? And I got to thinking, what is it that keeps us from being generous? And I know we've talked a little bit about being rich, but I think that this is part of it. For some of us, the idea of being rich means, you know, you don't have a number on it. It just means that you never have to worry about your bank account. You know, would that be rich to you? You could go buy something and you would never have to think about how much was left. You would never have to worry about that. You knew there would be plenty, that you could never deplete that, right? Well, here's why I think we tend to not live richly toward others. We're afraid of running out. We, we may be afraid of running out of money. We may be afraid of running out of emotional energy. We may be afraid of running out of a whole lot of things. And so we pull back. We, we get scared and we get stingy. And then we begin to get consumed with worry and we stock up. And if you don't believe me, all it took was somebody saying during COVID, ooh, I think there's not enough toilet paper. And people lost their mind, right? And when we worry about scarcity, then we stock up. Right? And, we are, and we're unable to be generous when we're worried about those things. And I love how Jesus begins to teach in this next section. And I just want to introduce it a little bit and then we'll close. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasure in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And right after he talks about not storing up, I think he hits us right at the source. Verse 25, therefore I tell you, do not worry. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is life not more than food and body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers grow? He starts talking about birds and flowers, and he's like, I got you. I got you. If your generosity in life is hampered by you trying to protect yourself, he's saying, I got you. 
I've got an unending supply of everything you need. You can afford to be generous. But the very thing that can keep us from living rich toward others can be worry. But when we are confident in what God will do for us, we are free to give away what we have. Because worry will kill generosity. So may we be rich in our relationships to family, friends, enemies, and strangers. May we offer grace to those who don't deserve it. May we be rich people who love and bless others lavishly. May we recognize the unending source of oil and not be stingy with the gifts we've received from God. I hope you get rich in your relationships. You can come to your feet. We're just about to go, go into our last song. These people up here, if, you've, if you're new to the vineyard, these are our um, prayer team. And during this last song, you might just want to stand there and, and take this in and hear what God's saying to you. But maybe this morning, are you someone who realizes you've maybe been settling and you know God's calling you to something more? I want to invite you to come up and let somebody pray for you. Maybe you realize that you have been consumed with disappointment and it has made it impossible for you to give God everything you want to give him because you're kind of, you've been afraid to tell him you're disappointed in him, but you really kind of are in the way things have gone. And that worry has affected the way you live. Or maybe you're one of those people who are just like, I only do what's expected of me and I don't do anything more. And I know that God is wanting a richer life for me than to just check things off of a list. If any of that touches you this morning, I want to invite you to come up after I pray here in a moment. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word that is recorded and and preserved all these years so that we can study it and, and understand. Although, God, I know that if we didn't have it, you'd find another way to reach us because that's who you are. But Father, hear us, hear us be thankful today. Thank you for the body of believers that we can spur one another on to good works, that we can minister to one another in hard times, that we can help one another um, just get a kickstart when we need one. Thank you for that. Stir our hearts today.